Well, most of us hate to wait, don't we? Whether it's sitting at a stoplight or standing in a line or maybe staring at a computer screen as we wait for it to uh, boot up or to download something. Now, those things are, are trivial compared to things where the stakes are higher or maybe the wait is longer. Sometimes we wait for weeks, maybe months, even years. And we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. We might be waiting for a loved one to get better. We might be waiting to meet that special someone or for a spouse to make the changes they need to. It could be that we're waiting for a clear career path, a job promotion, to finally get pregnant. None of us like to be in the waiting room when it comes to life. But as we turn in our Bible today to Genesis chapter 40, what we're going to see is that God had a man by the name of Joseph in a waiting room. And as God has Joseph in this waiting room, he is working to shape and to mold Joseph, to prepare him for the place that God is ultimately going to promote him to. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Joseph. We've been going through the, the book of Genesis. And as we've looked, we started with Joseph as the favored son of his father, Jacob. He was a 17-year-old who, who was in a favored position, but he wasn't liked by his brothers. And you recall that as he went out to check on them, that they stripped him of his hated robe that showed his special position. They threw him into a pit and they ultimately so, sold him to slavery. He was carried by slave traders to Egypt, and when he arrived there, he was bought by a man by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar, we saw, was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He was a high official in the palace. And Joseph, as he was in that home, he began as a menial servant, but God was with him, and God began to move Joseph up the line, ultimately being the manager of all that was in Potiphar's house. But then he hit the pit again. He went from top to bottom as he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And he found himself once again stripped of everything and thrown into the king's dungeon. He was again in a pit. But there God was with him again. And he began to move up to a place of responsibility in that prison. And this is where our story picks up today in Genesis chapter 40. So we look at Genesis 40 verses 1 through 4. It tells us, then it came about that after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. Now, the picture is this, the, the doors of the dungeon open and in come two more prisoners. Now, we see these aren't just two average prisoners. These are two palace officials. In fact, in the highest inner circle, Potiphar was in that circle, as you recall, as the captain of the bodyguard. And the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, the two other guys who were there in Pharaoh's inner circle, are suddenly thrown into prison. Now, Potiphar was the head of the secret service. He was the guy that protected Pharaoh. These two guys were in that circle because they were the ones who controlled his food and drink. They would try to poison uh, monarchs through, through the things that they ate and drank. And so these guys were in a high and trusted position. 
they not only were in charge of the food that he ate and what he drank, but if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you recall that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And we saw that that position meant that he was in the king's cabinet. He was a counselor. He was a guy that was with the king and would, would uh, help advise him. Now we're told that these two have offended the king. We're not told what happened. Because their positions are intertwined, it could have been a fiasco with the food. Maybe he didn't like a banquet or something that happened. It could have been advice they gave him as a counselor. Whatever happened isn't as important as knowing the fact that they offended their master. And they find themselves in the prison, thrown into the king's dungeon. Now remember, they're in the same circle as Potiphar, so they're probably friends. And as they get thrown into the prison, what does Potiphar do? He goes and he says, I want Joseph to oversee these guys. Now, if you were here last week, you recall that the, the way that Joseph ended up in the king's prison is that his wife, Potiphar's wife, falsely accused Joseph of attempted rape. And we saw in that passage that Potiphar didn't believe his wife. If he did, he would have killed Joseph on the spot. But having to choose between his slave or his wife, he had to take her side. And the best he could do was put Joseph in this prison. He still respected him. He still trusted him. And now as two of Potiphar's friends end up in that same prison, he says, the best I can do for you guys is to put you under the charge of this guy by the name of Joseph, and he'll take care of you. Now in verse 4, it tells us they were in confinement for some time. Again, we don't get a, a marker here, but if you read ahead into Genesis chapter 41 and verse 46, we'll see that Joseph is 30 years old when he's promoted. Now, in Genesis 41.1, we're told that after the cupbearer is going to be released from prison, that Joseph will remain in prison for two more years. So if we do a little math, Joseph is 28 years old at this point. Do you remember our journey with Joseph began when he was 17 years old? So 11 years have passed. Joseph has been in a downward spiral of circumstances that looked like a dead end. The first part of his life is nearly over. His 20s are gone. He's about to crest the hill into the next decade of his life. And here he finds himself with no family, no freedom, and labeled as a felon in a prison with no hope of early release for good behavior. This has been a very significant season of waiting. I want you to think just for a moment. Rewind the clock in your mind for a moment and think about where you were 11 years ago. Take 11 years off your life today and remember how old you were, where you were, and what was happening, and then figure out all that has happened in that 11 years since then. This is what's happening with Joseph. He's been in this season of waiting for 11 years. Now, as we've seen in the previous messages in this series, God hasn't been asleep during this time, but God has been at work. He's been at work in the life of this young man. This, this young man that we saw was a little bit spoiled at the age of 17, a young man who really didn't understand uh, decorum and, 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 you know, using the dreams that God gave him, he used it to rub his brother's nose in it rather than saying, wow, what a privilege. And so what God has been doing is rubbing the rough edges off of Joseph for 11 years. He's been developing maturity in this young man. He brought him into Potiphar's home where he would learn the language, the culture. He would be exposed to the palace uh, uh, ways of doing things. And here, once again, God brings two more palace officials alongside Joseph to prepare him for where he's about to be. 
So these haven't been wasted years. But they've been a tough time for Joseph. He's been in this this waiting room, as God may have some of you today in a waiting room. And as you look around and as you wonder, God, when is this going to end? When are you going to move me to the next stage of my life? When are you going to allow my dreams to be fulfilled? It's easy for us sometimes to ask God when and why and, and, and what are you doing? I've been in several seasons of waiting in my own life. As I look back over what God has done in and through my life, there are plenty of times that he's had me in waiting rooms. Some have been for extended seasons. Some have been very hard and painful. In those waiting room times, sometimes it's the refiner's fire, whereas God is burning away the things that don't belong or he's, he's tempering us and strengthening us for something to come. Uh, those can be very hard times. I wish I could tell you that I was really spiritual and I was always at peace with God in those times where he had me waiting. But I've had to learn what Psalm 46.10 means when it says, be still and know that I am God. Some translations say, cease striving. Quit fighting against me. Be still and know that I am God. One of the waiting rooms that, that God had me and my wife go through was a time of infertility. I've shared that story with you before, but as we look at Joseph's life and this season of 11 years and two that are to come, uh, I'm not over-spiritualizing it, but God had my wife and I in a 13-year period of waiting to have children. And I remember uh, when we started trying to have kids and the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years And after a while, the years turned into a decade and more. And in those times, our our empty arms had just very heavy weight being so empty, and we desired to have kids. And I have numerous memories of of going through that season. One, One of the most vivid for me is I was standing in the front yard of our house. We were in Kaufman, Texas. It's 30 miles southeast of Dallas up in the East Texas area, and I had been pastoring a church there for a number of years. And as we waited and we tried and the church was praying for us to have kids and we were praying and we were going through this period, we eventually bought some land out there. There were a couple hundred open acres that were being developed and we were the very first home to be built into this new neighborhood. And so we built our house and we were there and over time more and more homes were built all around us to the point where over 100 acres were covered in new homes. And we had beautiful old oak trees, these post oaks, and there was one that was well over 100 years old, this massive tree you could barely put your arms around. And I remember one one beautiful Saturday morning. It was a a beautiful day. I'm standing out in the front yard doing some work. And and I look around in every single home, all the homes that were built all around us, every single one of them had kids playing in the front yard. And there I am in our front yard. And as I'm standing behind this tree, the tears started coming down my face and I kind of hid behind the tree, just leaning against it and looking around. And I, I, I just said, God, why? Why won't you give us kids? I was suffering. My wife was suffering. We were going through this process. And I just remember sitting there with tears streaming down my face. You know, like I said, I'm not always that spiritual. And I, I remember praying this prayer. It was, I said, you know, God, I'm serving you. I'm a pastor. How about a little professional courtesy here? <laughs> you know, like I said, I'm not always spiritual, but I, I remember praying that and just saying, God, why? And you know how God responded to my prayer? Silence. Silence. 
More years passed and no kids. And after years and years, more than a decade had passed at that point of trying to have kids. And we pursued adoption. We pursued fostering. We were seeing doctors. We were trying some of the low-level fertility treatments. We were doing all kinds of things. And we were saying, God, why? And then finally, one day, we got the news. We're pregnant. And I was so excited. I remember how I got the news. I was driving downtown Dallas. I was uh, teaching a a men's study in downtown Dallas. And and my wife had put a card in my my car for me. And I opened it up at a stoplight. And I opened it and it said, we're pregnant. And and here I am on Ross Avenue in downtown Dallas. And and I start crying. I'm so happy. The light turns. Somebody's honking horns. All right, good, you know, and, and I'm driving down the road. I'm just, I mean, tears streaming down my face. I'm so excited. Well, a few weeks later, we get the news that we miscarried and we lost our baby. And it was 15 more months of waiting after that. Again, God, why? What are you doing? Why won't you give us children? And then finally... The news came again at 13 years, we're pregnant again. And the desperation at that moment, we've lost the one baby that we knew about. And we'll see that, we'll see that child in heaven. That's one of our children and it's there in heaven waiting for us. But as I heard the news again, we're pregnant. Well, you talk about desperate prayers, you know. God, make all the hormone levels right. Don't let anything, every time there was any concern about anything, we were afraid we're going to lose our baby. And finally, uh, the the term is up. My wife's water breaks. We drive from Kaufman to Dallas, doing about 110, 30 miles into Dallas. We get, I wasn't unsafe. We get there. And we're in the hospital and we're, we're going to go through all the fun of the birth and everything. And it was like one of those scenes from ER where suddenly the doors burst open and 20 people come running in the room and they're swarming all around. And, you know, you're going, what is going on? Well, the baby's heart rate is crashing. They're, they're, they're afraid we're losing the baby. They're, they're wheeling us down the hall. And again, more desperate prayers. God, what are you doing? No, don't do this. And we get in and there's an emergency cesarean and praise God, our daughter Sarah is born. And then we were so grateful. We were so thankful. Everybody celebrated with us and we kept praying, God, we don't want to be, you know, greedy, but could you give us more? And three more years passed before our next daughter, Hannah. And then another two years passed before our son, Zachary. And so God had us in this season of waiting. And again, I can, you know, as, as I think back through this, this whole season, I would have never chosen it. If, if, if God could have said, Roger, how do you want this thing to go? Uh, I wouldn't have said, God, would you put us through 13 years of, of desperate prayer and waiting? But I can tell you that my wife and I are different today. And we're better able to minister to others who are in seasons of waiting, not just in terms of having children, but in so many other waiting rooms that God has people in. Because we've been in those times of disappointment and waiting and desperate prayer, and we know what it is like. Those times of waiting are hard. And one of the things that we have to guard ourselves against when we go through a season of waiting is where our hearts become hardened. 
It's very easy in those times to to be tempted to turn your back on God or just to close up to try to protect yourself. And as we look at the story of Joseph, we would not be surprised if as we read this text, we were told Joseph was a bitter and hardened man as he's there in this penitentiary, in this underground prison. He suffered abuse. He's been abandoned. He's been falsely accused. And as these two new guys come into prison, it would have been so easy for Joseph to have said, you know, you guys think you have it hard? Let me tell you what hard is. But instead, look at what it says in verse 4. It says that as Potiphar says, hey, Joseph, here are two guys, and I want you to take care of them. It says he does that. The Hebrew word that is used here literally means to minister, to minister to and to serve these individuals. You see, what we see is Joseph's heart here, his service. His heart hasn't hardened. It's, it's been tender, and it's, it goes beyond meeting their physical needs. It doesn't just say, well, Joseph was diligent, and they had three hots and a cot. They were well-fed, cared for, protected in the prison. But it says it went deeper than that because in, in verse 5, these guys have a dream. Each one of them has a dream that disturbs them. And verses 6 through 7 tell us this. When Joseph came came to them in the morning and observed them. Behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Joseph is up making his morning rounds. And it says he sees these guys are sad. You know, he could have easily said to himself, who isn't sad? We're in prison. We're, we're here in jail. He, he could have said, you know, Hey, I've been here for years. These guys just got here. I'm going to ignore them and take care of myself. You know, in times of disappointment or waiting, we can easily close down, can't we? We can easily just say, I'm going to take care of myself. Life is hard on me. I I don't care what's happening to everybody else. I want to have my own pity party. I want to just sit here and I I want to just close myself off from the world and we stop caring about others. But here we see Joseph does the opposite. He steps outside of his own situation and he says to these guys, what's wrong? What's going on? What's the matter? How can I help you? You know, in those times where we help others, we end up helping ourselves. Because what it does is it keeps us from getting into that downward desperate cycle where we we close ourselves off as we step outside of our situation and we begin to help others, it will help us. Galatians tells us to, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of the Lord. As we bear others' burdens, God will strengthen us as well. God doesn't want us to go it alone. If you're the type of person who is trying to go through life alone, may I remind you that even the Lone Ranger had Tonto? God has not designed us to try to go through life alone. He's given us one another to help. He tells us to bear one another's burdens. You read the book of Hebrews and it tells us in in Hebrews 10.25 not to forsake your fellowshipping together as is the habit of some. He's talking about those who stay away from church that don't gather together. He says don't forsake fellowshipping together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body of Christ, to support one another. 
In those times where you're hurting, you can come here. And, and we know God is real. We know he's with us. But sometimes we need God's presence with flesh on. And he gives us a, a fellow Christian to, to give us a hug, to, to put a hand on our shoulder, to, to look us in the face and say, what's wrong? What's going on? How can I help you? The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And in those times as we go through hard things on our own, God uses those to to make us able to better minister to others. Corinthians tells us to to encourage one another, to support one another with the comfort that we've received. As you've gone through a situation, before this service even began, uh, I saw that once again as as I was just going around and I stopped and I and I said hello to to one of our women here who who lost her husband. And as I was talking to her, I actually interrupted another man who was talking to her who had lost his own wife previously. And then his, his new wife, God's story of redemption, where this man and this woman who both lost their spouses and are now married to each other, she came up. And the three of us were surrounding this one woman, just encouraging her because they are those who have walked through that road themselves and they are best equipped in order to come alongside and strengthen and encourage another. As we look at Joseph, we've read all throughout the story of Joseph, it says, and the Lord was with him. We have that same promise. The scripture tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the spirit of God dwells within you? We as believers have God himself resident within us, the Holy Spirit. And then he's given us his body with flesh on through the body of Christ, the church, as I said, who can come alongside and strengthen, support, and encourage one another. As Joseph seeks to help these two officials, we see he recognizes he needs God's help. Verse 8 tells us, Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. You know, in that moment where Joseph hears, we had a dream, don't you think that he said, yeah, I had a couple of those too. God told me that one day my brothers are going to bow down to me and look at where I am here in the prison. Yeah, good luck with that dream. That's, that's how we would respond, right? But Joseph hasn't hardened himself to God. In those times where we face suffering or waiting, there's a temptation to question God's care. Joseph could have said, you know, if God hasn't answered my prayer or fulfilled the dreams he gave me, then why would God do that for you? But he doesn't say that. He says, yeah, God gives dreams. And God will interpret the dreams. And God will fulfill the dreams. And so he says, tell me your dream." In verses 9 through 11, the cupbearer shares his dream. And in verses 12 through 15, we find the interpretation. It tells us, and Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Lifting up somebody's head, everybody would bow down in the presence of the king. And if he touched you with the scepter, he was saying, rise, lift your head up from the ground. Look at me. It was a way of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to grant your request. So it says, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh 
and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into this dungeon. Here we see the humanness of Joseph. Just a glimpse, right? You know, sometimes in the midst of our waiting, what we do is we, we adopt a posture of inactivity where we do nothing. And we say, well, Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. That doesn't say uh, be passive. It doesn't say be inactive. If you read the context there, there's a balance. What God said is quit trying to do things your way. Trust me. Cease your striving. And so what happens here is uh, sometimes what we need to do is have a balance. It's where we are not anxious. It's where we are not trying to override or force open. Have you ever come to a door and you find it's locked and we try to kick it in and run through it and on? God says, look, if I close a door, then find the window I've opened. Look for the other opportunity. I'm telling you, this is not the way I want you to go. In James 4, 2, we're told you do not have because you do not ask. We're to be involved. We are to be praying. We are to be entreating God. Now, it warns us in the next passage right after that in James 4, 3, it says, and you do not get what you want because you ask with the wrong motives to spend it on your pleasures. Again, there's a balance where we make the request of God and then we allow God in his perfect timing and will to work in our life. As we look at what Joseph is asking for, it's not some selfish desire. He's just asking for justice. He says, I've been wrongly imprisoned. I was kidnapped. I was sold by my brothers. I was put in prison for something I didn't do. I just want out. He's a real person, not some plaster statue of a saint. He trusts in God, but he also knows that God sometimes brings people and connections in our path. Sometimes God says, this is the way that I'm going to answer your request. Waiting doesn't mean to be inactive. A a farmer sows his seeds, right? And then he waits for God to bring about the increase. If you're waiting for work, then sow seeds. Pursue leads. Use the networks, the connections God has given to you. Go out and look. As my wife and I were waiting for children, we prayed. We pursued medical options. We pursued adoption. We tried to do things, but ultimately God was the one who who said, you know, Roger, I'm closing all these doors because you don't know it, but I've got kids coming for you. You just have to wait a while. And that's why he was closing the doors. Now at the moment, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to us. The challenge we face when we're in the waiting room is to be okay with where God has us while we're trying to get out of it. That's what Joseph is doing. He didn't passively sit in his cell. He didn't count the days. He didn't mope around and feel sorry for himself. He was doing what he could. You know, a moving car is easier to steer than a parked one, isn't it? And that was Joseph. He said, okay, I've been parked here in prison, but I can still move in these ways. I can get out of my cell and serve others instead of moping. I can, I can try to use the connections that God is bringing my way. As he sat there in a prison, it could have very easily been something that destroyed him. But in that place, he continued to to have communion with God. Dr. David Soper wrote a book called God is Inescapable. And in it, he observes the difference between a prison and a monastery. A monastery, as you know, is where people are cloistered and, and some would think of it as a prison. 
And he says the difference between a prison cell and a monastery is the difference between griping and gratitude. He says imprisoned criminals spend every waking moment griping. Self-imprisoned saints spend every waking moment offering thanks. When a criminal becomes a saint, a prison may become a monastery. But when a saint gives up gratitude, a monastery may become a prison. Which one do you live in? Joseph was living in a prison cell, but it was a monastery. It was a place of prayer. It was a place where he said, God is present in this place. God is with me. And as he was in that prison, as he was in that dungeon, he knew that God was not done with him. Now he tells this cupbearer, he says, in three days, you get out. He says, your time of confinement is about to end. And he says, when you get back into Pharaoh's court, remember me. Now, now notice there's no manipulation. He doesn't say to this guy, now look, you owe me. I've taken care of you in here. You know, some, some guy could have put a, a shank in your back. You could have been killed. Uh, I've, I've taken care of you and, and I've given you a good word from the Lord. So you owe me. When you get out, you better make it happen. He doesn't do that. He just says, remember me. He uses the word hesed, which means loving kindness, God's faithful love. He says, show hesed to me. So he gives this good word to him. Now the baker who's sitting nearby hears all this. He's been listening in. He likes what he hears. So he says, hey, I had a dream too. And he tells his dream in verse 16. Now verses 18 through 19 tell us the outcome will not be the same. Then Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now, this one is a different lifting of the head because look what he says. He will lift up your head from you and he will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. Now, this was horrific. If you've ever looked at the Egyptian culture, they, what did they do with their bodies? They mummified them. I mean, they prepared them for the next life, they thought. And what Joseph is saying is, you know, you're not only going to die, but they're going to cut your head off and they're going to hang your body on a tree where the birds are going to peck it apart and eat it. <laughs> your body isn't even going to be preserved for the future. Great news. Thanks, Joseph. I feel so much better, right? You know, as Joseph shares this with him, we see Joseph's integrity. This is another hard thing in those seasons of waiting is to maintain our integrity, isn't it? In those times of waiting, we begin to think, well, if God's not going to do something, I'm going to have to make it happen. Or, you know, God's not helping me. I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to do what I can. Joseph could have very easily said, you know, I don't like this dream. And if I tell this guy this dream, not only is he going to be sad and mope around all day, but it's not really going to get me any brownie points. And I'm trying to get in good with these guys. So maybe they can help get me out of here. And, and so he could have very easily said, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you on that interpretation. This was going to take some time. I mean, Joseph knows, hey, in three days, this guy's dead. He could have said, let me, let me get back with you in four days and I'll have the answer for you. But instead, he shares the hard news. You know, Proverbs 27 tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful the kisses of an enemy. He could have very easily, you know, shaded the truth, ignored it, done something but instead he said, look, I'm going to be faithful in telling you what's happening. 
And it's not going to be happy news for you. How many of us do that? Do we say what other people want to hear in order to be liked or to try to get a promotion or to avoid the pain of a hard conversation? Or do we sit down with somebody and say, look, this, this isn't easy for me to say, but I, I need to tell you these things. In those times where we find ourselves in those places where we're waiting, there are plenty of opportunities to compromise, to twist the truth, to pretend to be somebody we're not. We could hold back on what God wants us to do or to say, but Joseph doesn't do that. He tells, he tells the guy exactly what God wants him to know. And in verses 20 through 23, we see that things turn out just the way that Joseph said they would as God revealed them. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. How happy do you think Joseph is at this moment? He says, the cupbearer got out. He's right there with Pharaoh. He's back at the throne. And at the right moment, he's going to say, Pharaoh, listen, there's this guy. He helped me out. And, you know, we need to help him out. And so as he is restored to the palace, every time there's a, a key turn in the prison door, don't you think Joseph stood up and said, is this it? Is this the day where I'm going to be released? As he heard footsteps echoing down the hallways of the, the jail cells, do you think he thought this is the moment somebody's going to come and say, Joseph, you've been pardoned, you're free. And yet we're told that the days turn to weeks, which turn to months, which turn to years. And after a while, Joseph realizes his release isn't coming. And we're told why in Genesis 40, 23, because it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <laughs> That's like a kick in the gut, isn't it? Have you ever been there where you're thinking, okay, this is the moment where God is finally going to do this for me. This is where my circumstance is going to change and you're excited and you're ready and you get passed over. And you're going, why? Your, your, your dreams collapse in on you. And in those moments, we're tempted to think that not only did the cupbearer forget Joseph, but God forgot Joseph. I mean, if the guy forgot Joseph, God's the guy who's given dreams, right? He could have very easily woken him up and said, hey, aren't you supposed to be doing something? You, tomorrow morning, you need to go tell Pharaoh about Joseph. But God didn't do that. He could have very easily given another dream, but we find out why. We find out why Joseph is still sitting in the prison by peeking ahead to the next chapter. Genesis 41.1 tells us this. Now it happened at the end of two full years. Let that soak in for a moment. Two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. You see, God indeed uses a dream, but this one he gives to Pharaoh, which we will see will result in Joseph being brought out of the prison and promoted to the palace. 
where he would become the guy who was the second in command of all of Egypt. But before we get there, there's going to be two more years of waiting. We're going to wait three weeks to get to that because we have our missions conference coming between now and then. Now, you can read ahead in the story to see what happens, but we're going to be in the waiting room for a little while. But you see what happens is Joseph is waiting for two more years. And we go, why? Again, God has the timeline. God has the plan. God has the purpose. And do you know what God's doing? He says, you know, if, if the cupbearer had remembered and told Pharaoh and Pharaoh had sprung Joseph and Joseph got out of prison, what do you think Joseph is going to do? Are you going to hang out in Egypt? Or are you going to hightail it out of there where you say, this, this is, I, I can hardly wait to see this place in my rearview mirror. Have you ever been in one of those places? And Joseph could have very easily left Egypt. And what God says is, you see, Joseph, I've got you here for a reason. There's a famine coming in the land. And I need you to be the guy who is going to administrate and prepare uh, so that ultimately you can save your family that is back in Canaan. And so you can save ultimately all of the known world. And he says, but that time of preparation doesn't come for another two years. And if I let you out now, Joseph, uh, you could leave. And so I'm going to keep you where you need to be. Waiting, depending on me, being prepared. And some of you this morning are sitting in a place of waiting and you're going, God, why? I think I've been here long enough. And what God says is just a little longer. I have a reason. I'm not done refining you. I'm not done preparing you. You know, back in Genesis chapter 37, we talked about how great it would have been if while Joseph was in that first pit, if an angel had appeared to him. Do you remember that? I said, imagine that at that moment as Joseph was naked and shaking and in fear of his life down in the pit, God had showed up and said, now listen, Joseph, I know things look dark right now, but let me line this out for you. Let me tell you all that's going to happen over the next 13 years. And these are the things that are going to happen. And this is why, and this is ultimately where it ends with you in the palace. Joseph would have said, I don't like the road between here and there, but I like the end. So, okay. What if God had shown up to, to my wife and I in 1988 and said, listen, Kim and Roger, I, I want to tell you something. You're going to go through a very hard time of waiting. It's called infertility. And, and you're going to go through some, some difficult times and there are going to be times you're going to wonder, what am I doing and where am I? And, and on and on. And there's going to be all these, these hopes that are dashed and hard things that happen. And, and you know, between here and there, it's, it's, it's going to be a really hard time. But let me tell you something. In 2000, those empty arms are going to be filled with a baby girl named Sarah. And then in 2003, we're, we're going to give you Hannah. And then in 2005, you get Zachary. And we would have said, oh, okay, well, that's, that's going to make the next 13 years a whole lot easier, God. Thank you. But that's not what God does. Sometimes. But most often what God does is he says, I have a plan. And I'm only going to give you just enough of the plan. Just enough to see the light for the very next step. Because I need you to remain in, in desperate dependence on me. 
And I need you to, to hold on to me and to know that, that I am God and I'm going to be, I'm going to be preparing you and I'm going to be changing you and transforming you. And we go, God, none, none of this is making sense to me. And in those times where we're in those waiting rooms and things don't make sense, there are plenty of passages we can go to in the Bible, but one of them is in Romans chapter five. In Romans five, one through two, we read, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That, that's a great place just to linger and, and say, God offers us peace. This is talking in the context of how we were separated from God and we were lost and hopeless and on. And he says, we have peace. How? We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope hope of the glory of God. He goes on to tell us in verses three through five, and not only this, he says, this is great, but he says, guess what? I've got more. And this is where many of us find ourselves right now. But we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy spirit who was given to us. What is the purpose of your place of waiting? Endurance, perseverance. He's preparing you. You know, the way you learn to run a marathon isn't just by reading a book. That doesn't do you much good. You have to get out and pound the pavement. You have to go through the process. You have to go through the hard suffering. You have to build up the endurance. You have to work toward that goal. And what God says sometimes is, I've got you in this place right now. And it's hard. But we're running a race called life. And there is a goal. For while we were still helpless, do you feel helpless at the moment? While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. And you may be sitting here right now going, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, God, God, should, God should be tight with me because I'm, I'm the man, I'm the woman who walks with him. And what the Bible tells us is, no, none of us are that good righteous person for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three a little bit earlier told us Romans three ten says, no, there's none righteous, not even one, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're coming to the communion table, remembering that Christ died for us. Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. It says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, how? Through him. Through Jesus Christ. Through what God did for you and for me. You see, as we come to the communion table today, Joseph said to the cupbearer, what? Remember me. Remember me. And when we come to this table, what we are doing is remembering what Christ did for us. You see, sometimes we say, God, you're not fair. 
we don't want God to be fair, friends. Because if God were fair, we would all be the baker. Do you remember the baker? It says that he offended Pharaoh. And the result was that he lost his life. He paid the penalty of death for offending the master. You and I have offended our master, God. We've sinned. And what we are deserving of is the penalty of death. And what God has done for us is what he did for the cupbearer. He too offended his master. And yet it says, but the king forgave the servant who offended him. The king removed him from the penalty of prison. He restored him to the palace. He invited him back into the presence of the king. I don't want to be the baker, do you? I want to be the cupbearer, the one who has been restored, the one who has been forgiven. And what we see before us is how God demonstrates his own love toward us in this while we were yet sinners. While we who offended our master and deserve the penalty of death, it says Christ died for us and we've been justified by his blood, saved from the wrath of God through him. As we come to this communion table today, we're remembering what God did for us, his great gift of love, his great gift of new life. In a moment, the men are going to pass the elements. You'll have a cup representing the blood of Christ and a piece of bread representing the body of Christ, the things that were given to save us from our sins. As you take, I want you to hold those, and I want you to just ponder for a moment what the grace of God looks like in your life. Those two things represent God's great love for you, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you as he did for me. If you're here today and you've never received God's great gift of new life, I invite you to do so today. To say to God, God, I know I've offended you. I've sinned. And I know I deserve the penalty of death. But today, God, I'm turning from my sin into you, Jesus, as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. I accept your great gift of new life for me. And as you do that, the scripture says you will be saved. You will be made a part of the family. You will be invited back into the presence of the king. When you die, you will be given a place right there with God. Not just as a servant, but as a son, as a daughter, as a child of the king. For all of us who have received the Lord, you're welcome to this table. This is open to all who are believers, not just members of Wayside. So take and hold the elements, and in a moment we'll take them together. Men, will you serve us, please?
We've talked about how Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him. And God told us to remember him as well. Not Joseph, but God. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following, it tells us this. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ, eat it in remembrance. It tells us in the same way he took the cup. Also after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Join me please as we close in prayer. Lord God, today we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that you remember us even in those places where we feel forgotten, even in those seasons where we feel forgotten as we are waiting and the, the days have become weeks and maybe months, even years. We thank you, God, that we know you know us. We thank you, God, that you haven't forgotten us. We're reminded of that, not just through the story of Joseph in the waiting room, but also because of what your son did as he gave his life. As he gave his life to demonstrate that you know us and you know our need and you are able to meet it. We thank you, God, that you gave your son to be the payment of the penalty of sin that I and all the others here today owed for our sins. We thank you, God, for your great love. We remember this today, God, and we are grateful. We are so thankful for what you did for us. May we be those, Lord, as we trust you for eternity, to be able to trust you for tomorrow and the next week and the month after that and the things that will come in the years ahead. Because, God, we know that you are able. And beyond knowing that you are able, we know that you have a plan and a purpose. And you in your perfect time will work it to your glory. And so we submit ourselves to you and we ask that you would give us the grace we need in those times where we're waiting. We thank you, Lord, for what will ultimately come. We thank you for revealing your plan that shows us one day we will be in your presence in heaven. Thank you again for the gift of your son that allows that. In Jesus' precious name we pray today. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.